welcome back to Forensic Minds Australia, a podcast aimed at those studying to be forensic psychologists and early career forensic psychologists, or those with an interest in forensic psychology and are curious as to what it actually is forensic psychologists do. Today is our second episode of Forensic Minds, and we're going to be focusing on offending behaviour programs. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we are listening today and pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Now our host for today's episode is Elizabeth Treston. Now a little bit about Liz. Liz is currently working as a forensic registrar in forensic mental health services for corrections. Having previously worked as an accredited Defence Force recruitment psychologist, Elizabeth um, completed her Master's in Forensic Psychology at Bond University in 2018 and is currently in the process of obtaining her PhD. Her master's thesis involved the analysis of crime scene characteristics between mentally disordered and non-mentally disordered offenders, which helped to gain perspective on the mindsets of offenders during homicides and how these were reflected in the crime scene. She's also completed numerous placements in high-risk, high-secure environments, as well as communal organisations such as Queensland Youth Justice. Liz is passionate about how forensic psychology can contribute towards the dynamics of psychology as a whole and why it is important as a discipline itself. Liz is currently both the secretary and the early career representative for the APS College of Forensic Psychologists National Committee. And our guest today, Dr. Chris Kozar. Chris is a forensic psychologist with extensive experience, including academic publications in the area of offending behaviour programs. Chris holds a Master's in Forensic Psychology and completed her PhD in Forensic Psychology at Deakin University, studying the role of the Therapeutic Alliance in Offending Behaviour Programs with a specific focus on, the, on responding to clients demonstrating personality dysfunction. Upon completion of her PhD, Chris moved into a clinical role with the Department of Justice in Victoria. During this time, Chris's predominant area of practice was with the offending behaviour programs, including sex offender programs. Chris also has experience working in private practice as a consultant forensic psychologist and is currently serving as a member of the APS College of Forensic Psychologists Victorian Committee. Well, that's all from me for the moment. I'll pass on to Liz and Chris. Thank you so much for joining us, Chris. Uh, welcome to Forensic Minds Australia. Thanks, Liz. It's great to be here. Oh, good. And very, yeah, looking forward to, to having a chat with you about forensic psychology and um, what got you interested in talking about the, the work that you're doing. Um, what was it that drew you towards the field of forensic psychology initially? You know, how, how did you get into it? Yeah, that's that's a rather slightly boring um, story. I was doing my honours at Monash Uni and Professor Don Thompson um, was my supervisor and I found that he was doing a Masters in Forensic Psychology there many years ago. Um, he ended up moving but then I, I followed John to um, Edith Cowan University where I did my Masters there. Um but between doing honours and my masters, I also had a chance to become to be a research assistant for Don 
he was reviewing high security and protection units mm. in Melbourne and the prison system. So I got that role. I guess I'd also always been interested in law but didn't want to be a lawyer. Yeah. And um, I really like the field of psychology. So for me, it was a perfect marriage. Um, so opportunity that came up like that to do my, um, to do the, to do the research assistant role um, and then followed it up with doing the masters. Yeah. Okay. And how, how do you think it, um, you, you know, when you first started in forensic psychology, what was your expectation of the role? Yeah, that's a good question. Cause I don't, I, I, I originally really wanted to, I was really interested in doing research. Um, and so I was kind of looking for other opportunities like, with the research assistant role I had, whether if there were other pieces of research I could do. But the first role I got was a clinical one. Um, I was, <laughs> I when I was doing my master's um, they, uh, in Perth, there was a real shortage of psychologists willing to do the work in prisons. And I don't know, I just kind of thought, oh, no, that sounds quite interesting. So it was really more around curiosity that I took that position. But the expectation was that I could find research and I, I haven't really had that many research roles in the end. Um, but, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. yeah. So was the plan to become an academic, you know, go down that route? Or? I hadn't really done that much thinking around it. I, was just, I just knew that I really was interested in research. Um, yeah, so I hadn't got that far in my thinking. Okay. Yeah. Was yeah. was your masters? Do you think similar to what is happening with the current masters programs? The combination of um, practical and academic and research and um, classes and all the rest of it was it similar? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So there were course components and um, and like there were some short. Um, placements that we had to do then there were a number of longer placements there was a research piece in that um so yeah yeah it was the combination of things which I think is a really good um introduction to forensic psychology you get those different aspects to it and you get to study some of the subjects in depth yeah some of the longer pieces of assessments yeah um yeah nice um so how do you think the you know kind of the role of forensic psychology has changed over the years in your experience oh well um yes because I did my master's um quite a few years ago um in the 90s and um really the what's worked literature what works literature sorry was really just burgeoning then um most, like the role that I got in prison at around that time, and so we're talking about kind of 93, 94, I think, um, that was as a psychologist to really look at mental health and to try and prevent suicides and self-harm. Um, there were a number of short programs that were being delivered in drug and alcohol and violence, but they were very brief. So I think the contribution that research and us as practitioners has made over the years is, is to be much more effectual in the kinds of services we deliver. And now, of course, um, looking at the, at the models that, that guide our um, program delivery, 
um, you know, it, it's it's quite transformed in terms of having longer therapeutic programs to really try to affect some of those changes in, in our clients rather than the briefer ones or just having psychologists kind of mopping up yeah. <laughs> mental health issues oh, and really having um, prison staff far more engaged and involved and responsible uh, for part of that work rather than um, an us-them kind of thing, which I think when I started it was still in, in Perth, still a bit of a feel of, of, of that, that it was not necessarily seen as collaborative as, as much as it, it is now. It's not an ideal therapeutic um, system and I think it, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, it definitely needs reworking somehow. Yeah, I, I think you're right and I think that's why when you are a therapist in a prison, you do have to really carefully consider how you conduct your therapy um, because um, the feeling of safety with the other person is paramount and engaging someone in a, in a manner where they um, become vulnerable and are then going to expose themselves to a very aversive kind of environment potentially um, is dangerous for, for them and dangerous, I think, as, as a therapist in terms of where that where your client might might end up. Mm. Um, so I think that's that's why we really need to be measured in how we, I think, do, you know, um, what we demand of our clients um, and I think think very carefully about how the therapy is conducted so that it doesn't leave those people vulnerable. Absolutely. When they leave out, I think it's our responsibility to ensure that that they're oriented and have the skills required to deal with the aftermath of our interactions with them. Yeah. And that, that can be that can be tricky when you're working with groups where there might be twelve men about to leave the room. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and I mean it's such a vulnerable population anyway, especially with the trauma histories. Um yeah, and it, it's so it's such a careful line to walk on to be able to get them to open up, but without kind of leaving them high and dry at the end of a a session, you know. And yes, especially if the there's no coping strategies, if there's no understanding of how they got to where they are. Um, yeah, it's that's right. It's incredibly right. difficult. Yeah. Mm. Or, the, or the coping strategy has been to be to react violently because mm. it's not helpful, obviously, either whether whether um, harm, um, you know, like either directing their um, anger inwards or outwards, either to themselves or to other people. Yeah. Um, sometimes both, obviously. Um, yeah, that's that's very problematic. So that's why I always think that. Some of the way our programs are designed um, are not ideal. I really think that it should be a lot of skill building at the start to exactly assist this process rather than getting people to um, explore some of the traumatic things that they've done in the past. I think really skills building should be up front and it's very often not the design of programs right now, mm. unfortunately. Okay, so what's, what's your current role at present? Um, so I'm a consultant forensic psychologist. So I um, I used to have contracts with corrections to deliver programs. 
Um, but um, currently my contract with Department of Justice in Victoria is around um, assessments, so writing up assessments. But I still have um, a caseload of individual clients that I see um, for treatment and they're, they're all forensic clients. Um, I also provide supervision to a number of interns at one of the prisons in this state as well. Um, and look, I'm in a um, very fortunate situation of getting occasional contracts or training or um, like developing models or other services. Usually that's collaborative with, with colleagues. Um, so, yeah, it can be quite varied, but day-to-day it is generally writing reports, um, seeing clients for individual treatment and um, supervision with my interns. Mm. I, I read your um, CV and there's about four pages or something like that of, of um, you know, policy implementation and um, government documents and, um, you know, around how your mental health in prisons essentially. Um, how, did you, how did you come to um, kind of work in a, a, a governmental um, facet? Well, um, after working as a psychologist in in prisons in Perth, I then moved back to Melbourne and um, because my master's thesis had been in an area of of, um, suicide prevention, um, essentially looked at prisoners who engaged in self-harm and that was chiefly the work that I did when I worked in prisons in Perth. Um, there was an opportunity that arose to deal with um, implementing suicide prevention policy. So I got that role. Um, I also think that when you work as a forensic psychologist, it can actually be very helpful to both work at the cold face as well as in more policy positions. Partly I think it's a reaction to the frustrations of the system sometimes when you're working in those clinical roles that you um, feel like you're not maybe being as effectual and maybe what, what's required is system change. So um, looking at those opportunities in policy positions, I think, can help to try and um, make some con- con- contribution to system level. I think that's one of the... Um, the things we offer as forensic psychologists is um, there's, it's more broad than necessarily just the clinical roles. That I think that it's such an enormous privilege to both work with individuals who might um, explore areas that they've never wanted to explore and never thought of exploring or tried to forget about and make a contribution to their life, but equally it's a privilege to be able to contribute to a system you write and, and make um, changes in the model of of service delivery or the, the, the principles under which people work. Mm. Um, yeah, and that's part of some of the work that I had an opportunity to do. Um, luckily, in Victoria, quite a number of years ago, there was a huge influx of, of money um, to look at, at transforming some of the work we do. Um, and the role I had there was to look at case management and implementing assessment processes into Victorian prisons, um, which had um, at the outset uh, assessment of risk of reoffending. 
So immediately you had some kind of um, identification of the factors that were related to people's offending. And um, so it meant at the outset the prison system was equipped with that information rather than finding out kind of right near the end when someone might have been entering programs. Um, so, yeah, at the outset people could be working on those different risk factors. Um, yeah, because ultimately it's about community safety. It is about looking to see how we can address those risk issues um, for the community mm. and obviously as well the individual. Okay. Do you, you know, in the, in the work that you've done with offenders over the years, do you genuinely believe that offenders can learn, you know, long-term pro-social behaviours, can be rehabilitated um you know, can can go the whole hog and stop offending, essentially? Uh, absolutely, and we see that in our research as well. Um, uh, I think that one of the interesting things to reflect on when you look at research um, on the efficacy of offender treatment is that, of course, not everyone who goes to our treatments comes out singing Kumbaya. And... Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and Liz, I've got a feeling that having worked in a prison, you can relate to that. <laughs> we, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a very Gosh. revolving door um, for a certain. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's right because yeah. we we see, uh, I think uh, you know, up, up to two thirds of people come back. But as we have been reminded throughout our careers, change is a process. It's not always the first go at something that people are able to affect those changes. Um, sometimes it is. Sometimes people um, are able to, and it might really be a small number of strategies that people use that can completely change and transform their lives. Um, getting their head around their substance abuse, um, maybe had, using a substitute op opioid therapy or something like that yeah. where it can really make a difference to whether they, they're more likely to commit offences or not. It could be a relationship. It could be a child. It could be a job um, in conjunction with, with, you know, wanting a new life or wanting something different and wanting to do well for their parents and being grateful for the opportunities. Mm. So that you, do, you certainly do see some quite dramatic changes with people. Um, unfortunately, though, very often I think the clients that... that um, I've been seeing it usually takes a little bit longer. Yeah. So it may not be the first program they do. It may be because we also know the trajectory of, of people who have complex issues is we're looking more around the 30 to 35-year-old mark that they're likely to, to make substantial changes in their life. Um, and it's complicated. It's also not just a matter of learning some anger management strategies and then your life is transformed. Often people are being released into situations where um, there's a lot of dysfunction. There may be um, uh, partners who are substance using. Um, their children may have been removed from their care because they're imprisoned and the process of trying to get them back and, and engage in a process where they can kind of prove that they're... Um, they're able to parent their children again. There, there are a lot of complications that people are generally relates to and, and yeah, it, it's generally not as simple. <laughs> One therapeutic program and everything for um, support 
um, where they're able to continue engaging in a process where um, uh, they can get the mental health support that they need, that they can have some of the learnings of the program consolidated actually in the community um, when they're back with their partner and there's potential exposure to the drug lifestyle that they might have been involved. So with all of those complications, I think that there's, I think they're definitely making inroads in that regard. I think there is a lot more support that's offered and it's much needed. Absolutely. I think that there is definitely a lot more we can do. I think we've come quite a way, Mm -hmm. um, but there's definitely a lot more we can do. And we also just know from a community safety perspective um, that the investment is worth it, that as a general rule, if you're talking about offending behaviour programs or other services, um, you know, you only need to either have um, either stop someone offending again or uh, reduce the severity of which they offend and the frequency in which they offend sort of got like a, um, a, a an increasing in number amount of time that they until they reoffend. There are massive savings for the community around that. So any investment that assists curve any of that, I think is is definitely well worth it. There should be I think there should probably be more cost-benefit analyses done on that, but the ones that I have seen for programs mm. um, definitely come out ahead by providing that support and, and work at the front end. So in your experience, what do you think have been the most, um, you know, effective programs which have been implemented within a correctional setting as far as, you know, recidivism or even self-esteem, things like that go? Mm. Um, well, look, I, I can't say this. This is just based more anecdotally, and, I and, guess. Yeah, anecdotally is absolutely yeah. fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not as <asking> good. <laughs> do a better analysis in the next 20 minutes or anything. You know. <laughs> um, look, I, I really think um, group therapeutic programs, I'm not a huge fan of very short programs. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they might have value in providing maybe a small handful of strategies to people, but I think that often, and you might be able to relate to this, if you go to two days of training and then you happen to see your training materials a couple of years later, do you then think, oh, I'm glad I've now implemented all of that training into <laughs> to my practice no, and I'm sure it's the same with programs that if something, if there's a relatively brief interaction um, and it's not supported and reinforced by other services, then, then typically we're going to forget what we learned and go back to kind of same old, same old. Mm. So the therapeutic, the longer term therapeutic programs really do provide more of an opportunity for the repetition that's required um, for people to engage in skills practice and then come and report back to the to the, um, in, in the programs, how they went with the skills practice. Um, and I think you, you, you then do, like, that's very rewarding as well because you're able to see that people um, have those light bulb moments of developing greater insight into their behaviour um, and how they can actually affect something different in their life, whereas previously they may not have thought they were able to change and that um, they were the way they were and that was that. And it's 
to me such a delight to to watch people come back to a program and say, ah, I used that thing we talked about the other day, and you know, like, and and it had a and it had a positive effect. It had a good positive result for them. I think that that's, that's brilliant. That's got to be my colleagues. <laughs> yeah, and and really, that's what, that's the opportunity that's available and along the program where you can establish the relationships, you can do the skill building, you can um, in, enhance people's self awareness of their behaviour, and teach skills that are then you know, and, and the model is going to work out every time, um, but they have a go and for them to see that actually they can affect change in their lives, that's really powerful. And it must be so rewarding for them to, to, you know, accomplish that and be able to actually learn and apply, you know, skills that they haven't before. It's like if you, you know, practice a piano or something and you manage to get a tune right for the first time, it's yes, absolutely lovely. A... <laughs> Not that I play yes. piano. <laughs> That's a great analogy. That's a fantastic analogy that I think is exactly what happens is that something that they actually, you know, a, a change that they thought they could never really affect and here they are and then potentially doing it again and again and again. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, so to develop some level of mastery around that change as well. That's yeah, great. great. That's great. Um, so obviously with some criminals, they can be lifelong offenders, they can be adolescent-specific offenders. Um you know, it must be heartbreaking if you, you know, because I have seen that you work with youth justice as well, but to see someone who you know is going to end up in the adolescent criminal, uh, sorry, the adult criminal justice system um, and is just going to be one of those people who is always, um, you know, who who's never going to be able to get out of the system essentially, um, you know, that kind of thing must be kind of heartbreaking. Absolutely, it is. And again, it's it's often where there's those complexities that I mentioned before with some of our clients. Um, you know, they've come from very impoverished backgrounds. Um, potentially, they've, you know, like the um, parental support is non-existent, or the parents, the people that introduce them to drugs, potentially introduce them to crime as well. Um, their their brothers are in prison already. Their cousins are in prison already, potentially. Um, so you've got like generate a multi generation of people engaged in um, antisocial lifestyle and involvement in the criminal justice system. Often they might be child protection clients as well. Um, so yeah, you've got a lot of complexities there, you know, and a lot of trauma that's potentially occurred, you know, in their very early formative years. Um, yeah, that that can be quite confronting too in a position where you offer therapy to someone who um, has that level of disadvantage already. Um, I think that what we can offer clients like that, the control that we have, because <laughs> that's where we need to reflect on our own abilities yes. and what we can make a contribution, yeah. um, is, is to offer a really positive therapeutic experience to people. Mm. Um, and you're right, often the li their lives are very chaotic um, and how much of what we say to them in that moment may not translate into um, behaviour change immediately. Um, but the, I think I think that we can still offer something that, that they might then go on to use later if you're talking about practical strategies 
But the value of the therapeutic relationship can't be underestimated. I'm thinking of a client I've got right now who I met in Youth Justice um, and like really the scenario I was talking about before, a child protection, he was was under child protection because of his parents' um, behaviours. They were were both drug takers. They were both engaged in criminal activities. Dad was quite aggressive. Um, Parents split up. Um, This this client um, co-offended with one of his sisters. Um, Now... It just happened that several years later I was referred to, I had a, a client through NDIS referred to me and it was this client. Um, now, I, um, in his next review, we, we got a number of hours but they were quite small uh, in terms of psychology and when I said to him, look, we have some other options in terms of different services, he said, he said no, 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 I'm not getting another psychologist. And we managed to find more funding so that I'm able to provide him much more consistent support. But I think the thing that I took from that was that if you develop the relationship and the person trusts you and they feel like that you've provided a level of support to them and you've been non-judgmental in the way you've interacted with them, um, and they could, there's, so there's a connection and I feel like there's a level of trust there. That can be so valuable for someone who otherwise engages in a chaotic lifestyle and has difficulty um, connecting with some of their other workers. Mm. So I think that that yeah, you can't underestimate the value of of providing that positive therapeutic interaction and how it might impact on them. Um, you know, after that, mm. I think that's the the thing um, that you know, budding psychologists, working psychologists you know have to always keep in mind it's as you said you know a little bit can go a long way um you may only need one session two sessions sometimes somebody just needs to talk but conversely you're not going to be able to help everyone as well um and it's not a failure it's not you know a lack of professionalism uh, professionalism or things like that it's just some people either don't want to be helped are not in a situation to be helped um And, you know, you can talk yourself blue in the face trying to convince yourself otherwise, but sometimes people just, like, sometimes it just, psychology is not for them. Um, And it's it's just, uh, you know, it's something that happens to all psychologists. I I think you're right. Um, You know, I guess um, we talk about that from the perspective of treatment readiness um, and some people not being able to be open to the process. Um, and I think you're right as well. I don't think the talking therapy suits everyone um, and nor should it have to. Um, we're not everyone's answer to every problem. I agree with that for sure. Um, sometimes it's a timing issue as well. Sometimes people just aren't in the right headspace to be able to be open to it. Um, so I think I always think that you know, then never close the door completely. Um, but I guess in those moments it is about being clear to the client that, you know, that the opportunity will be there at some other point if they're, if they're open to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, some people are going to be determined to not want to be part of your process. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think 
trying to fit them into the round hole when they're a square peg. It's yeah. It's painful for everybody. It's just painful for everyone. That can be excruciating. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> for better, wonderful words. Um, I mean, do you find with with the um, men and women that you work with, especially in a prisoner environment, um, do you find there's a sense of shame or stigma around the offenders who do attend therapy or do attend programs? Yes, I think there probably still is, uh, I've got no doubt. Um, and look, part of it I would put down to the culture and not even just the, because, you know, most of our prisoners are men. Um, I think it's also part of just the masculine culture that, you know, you can deal with things yourself um, and that um, no one else can help me, that I've got to do it myself. This kind of um, often our clients, um, you know, have a, a huge degree of self-entitlement as well, I assume, that that really they're the boss of them and it's a weird um, they won't be told otherwise. Yeah, it's a weird no. dichotomy, isn't it? It's like there's a sense of entitlement but there's a learned helplessness. Yes, yeah, that's very true. And it's That's very true. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that you can definitely overcome that and um, I guess that's, that's where you have to... Um, look I don't think there's any great scientific way of doing it that maybe someone will tell me different but really it ends up being about the group dynamic mm. that if you've got a sufficient culture within the group that's developed where um, actually expressing yourself and being genuine in your interactions with the therapists is seen as a positive thing and is valued then other people will come along to it I think what becomes difficult is where there is a high number of antisocial people who are determined to um, deride the situation and be derogatory to the therapists. And if that becomes the kind of the powerful influence in the group, it, it can be like a very toxic kind of environment and difficult for people then who do want the assistance to actually speak up. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so from a group perspective, I think that, that there are definitely challenges in that regard and it's about trying, getting the culture right um, and challenging either way. But um, as, you, as you mentioned, even just individually getting people to put their hand up to say I'm not going very well, <laughs> I some assistance is a real challenge and normally it will be because staff have observed that there are problems and have referred someone. Mm. Um, I think once you get them in the room, that's a different thing. I think that... Again, if you can provide that positive interaction with people, then they will genuinely see. And then, you know, you can try to be discreet in terms of when you schedule your next sessions. And, um, yeah. yeah. But, yeah, that, that, that remains a challenge, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. How, you know, how do you manage working with offenders that you um, have counter-transference towards? Mm. Um, I wouldn't say that they're actual groups, but there are definitely people yep. um, and I guess sometimes specific crimes. Um, I found it, say, terribly difficult to deal with a man who I knew had tortured his victim for for several hours and raped her in that time as well. Mm. Um, but I think it's about 
firstly developing a case formulation um, about the offending. So you can see it within the context in which it occurred. Um, if I'm thinking about this client again, not surprisingly, I learnt that he had actually been um, in a home where he had been sexually assaulted himself and really it, it sounded like it was particularly heinous, the, the offences that were committed against him. Mm. So I think that when you understand the context in which the offending has occurred and make sense of it that way, um, I think it becomes much more, much easier to then not have that visceral reaction to something that's happened. Yeah, and um, I, I do think you're right, actually. I think it is the person more than, um, yeah, more than a, a general group of right. offenders. And as you said, to the, you know, the amount of trauma in these, you know, these guys' backgrounds is generally... Um, you know, it's the kind of thing I wouldn't want to wish on my worst enemy. You know, it's Absolutely horrific. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And if you don't know any other way uh, of living, then you know it's, you're going to keep doing what you've always known. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, and very often, clients, um, particularly, have found those who have perpetrated sexual violence. Um, actually will say that what I did was nothing compared to what happened to me. Now, obviously, that isn't a justification for offending, but, but, I, can, but I can kind of sense that they are quite genuine when they say, look, what happened to me was horrific. What, what's the big deal? So it speaks to the normalisation of, of that kind of behaviour and, um, and certainly a lack of appreciation of, you know, look, their realities are just just been so different to what you might say is a normal person's life. Yeah. And, you know, so if there's less harm created in their minds, that's, that you know, like they're a little bit taken back as to what the fuss is and what they're even doing in prison. Um, so part of our role, I think, definitely in that case is to kind of illuminate really how far from reality um, their perception is. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and so I think that's that's the other thing is you know take into take their context. Uh, like you said, um, it's not just some of the traumatic events that they've been exposed to, but their whole lifestyle mm. um, and just the lack of boundaries that they've had around their own behaviour and um, within in their often their parental relationships as well has been really problematic aspects to the boundaries and behaviour. Um, so when you, when you kind of consider that context um, and you, you then, it never excuses the behaviour, but it certainly goes some way to being able to describe how they've gone from um, to commit those particular offences. And I think that then makes it much easier to deal with the person. And I think the other thing is to separate, the, to, to, to have the perspective of, this is an offence that this person committed rather than the offence being their whole identity. Mm. It's um, certainly a, a, maybe a very important, significant event, but it's not them and their complete identity. So separating the person from what they've done, mm. if you like. Um, but having said that, not never wanting to divorce the two, that, that certainly I think that, Part of our role is to try and um, 
illuminate for the client the degree of responsibility they're prepared to take for their offence and therefore for their behaviour going forward. Mm. Um, yeah, so I think that's really important too. Absolutely. But, and I think that's brilliant yeah. advice for, um, again, for people who are starting out in forensic psychology. What do you think has been your most rewarding experience as a forensic psychologist? Um, I think I'd have to say it is about those programs where you actually see people affect change. But I'm thinking of one in particular, a real standout for me was a program I was delivering in the community um, for someone who is on a community corrections order. And he would come into the program room initially, arms folded, you know, saying very, very little, nothing rude, but saying the smallest amount of information possible. And over time, like, the arms started to unfold. And then by the end of the program, he reported back that he had tried um, a number of strategies. The one that stood out for me was acting opposite. So he'd get very frustrated in the traffic. And that's part of one of his offending was road rage. So he he became very frustrated. And, of course, his normal response would have been to get really furious, potentially cut the person off and, you know, become very angry and violent. But, of course, acting opposite, he sort of thought, okay, well, if I'm acting opposite in this situation, I'm just going to calm down and just gently avoid this person. And it was completely successful for him. That's amazing. who <laughs> came in initially like... You know, and he, he originally was saying, you know, I have to be here, but I don't want to be here and I'm not going to learn anything. Mm. And so, <laughs> so but imagine how many other that. situations he would have used that in. Oh, yes. Wow, that's incredible. So, yeah, so um, that, yeah, it was very pleasing when you get people who do a complete 360 and actually see that they can try some of the skills out and then try them out and they're actually successful. That's amazing. So. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> win win. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. You know what? I think, um, yeah, we're, in forensics, like, I think we've <laughs> we got to take the small wins. So we're just a oh, lot of the time. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, is there anything you would have done differently in terms of your career path overall and why or why not? Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to say because I think that I I don't think I ever started a job and thought, well, this is rubbish. You know, I think that they've all played a part in my development. Um, I think though, working in prisons full-time, are you full-time yourself? At the moment, yeah. Yeah, it's that's quite a tough gig. It's exhausting. And I think that, yeah, I think probably if I had my time again, I would maybe think about two part-time roles or in the Department of Justice working in the prison for three days and maybe somewhere else for two days because I think that it can get um, very stressful. It's, it's difficult work. It's, it's demanding work. So having, I think that what I've learnt over the years is having variety is essential. Mm. That if you're doing a number of different roles, even if they're 
all difficult. <laughs> yeah, at least you got a bit of balance and mix up. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it is about trying to get that balance yeah. um, in your work role. Yeah. How yeah. do you kind of shut down at the end of a day? Um, I let me think. Well, <laughs> I what I would generally do after being in the prison all day would go for a very long walk. Yeah. Um, I think that that was probably a good way of shutting up, especially because I, I used to live near one of the prisons I worked in. So oh, it was yeah. almost not like getting out of it at all. Ever. So <laughs> I would head down to the creek and just let the let the day kind of drain out of me. Like, you know, I think it become actually this is where I really do think that practicing what we preach is becomes critical. Absolutely. Um and I I, I really think that that mindful practices I think are really valuable and look um I think I de- I definitely do that now as well that I'm when I'm with my family I'm with my family and it is a matter of practice is being able to um leave work and the things I should have done that I didn't get a chance to do when worrying about how I'm going to do these things next week <laughs> like being able to park some of those, acknowledge but park some of those thoughts and actually just enjoying the moment with family, I think, mm. um, is really important and that's a, that's a really good skill to have. Yeah. Um, but you, and you can never underestimate, I think, just, um, you know, just maintaining um, social interactions uh, with people, I think, is really critical, just having a laugh with people, Um and especially for people who work in the field as well, so they can kind of relate to, oh, I've just got another report in, oh, my God, I'm so exhausted. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, so you, people you know will be able to relate to what you're talking about and that you can just have a laugh with. I think that that's another different way that I like to wind in. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> What's one thing you know now that you wished you knew when you were first starting out in forensic uh, psychology? Right. I think it would be to not panic, right? Just that there's plenty of work out there that you've got skills that you can offer people. I think it's I think it's just kind of having more confidence that we uh, well-trained people that um, have have a lot to offer, um, and I, I really do like that there are. It seems to me still lots of opportunities of working in the corrections field as well as in policy. I think that as a general rule, there are lots of different services and an increasing number of services that offer work that forensic psychologists can do. Um, because there are more community-based services now, I think, as well as those offered actually in the prison. Um, so, uh, look, it hasn't really uh, made a massive impact in that. I think that, you know, like I've always had work and the diversity of work has come my way. Um, but I think just knowing that, I think I think just being assured that we, and I know that I think it was Don that used to tell us in our masters, you know, that, that we have a, a 
wide range of skills that we can offer people. Um, maybe I just didn't believe him 100%. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that, that yeah, because like I said, I don't think it's had a massive impact because I have had a diverse career. Yeah. Um, but I think it's it maybe maybe knowing that beforehand, I would be less anxious about what roles I was going to get, where it was going to take me and what I should do next. All the yeah. what ifs. Maybe, yeah, exactly. And maybe just being in the moment is okay. okay. Uh, to have, have faith that there are roles out there that we can make a lot of contribution to. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, last question is what advice do you have for anyone beginning their career as a forensic psychologist or wanting to go into the area of forensic psychology? Right, well, um, I think it's what's important is to develop a network of people that work in the field um, and because you, I think most of my roles I've found out about at least through word of mouth. Um, I think one of the greatest pleasures I've had is, you know, meeting a lot of forensic psychologists who work in quite diverse roles and have done research uh, in the courts and working with the police as well as the correction system. Um, so I think uh, I think developing a network of people, um, I think um, if you're up for it, doing um, research in the area I think is a great idea, whether it's through a master's or a PhD, I think that's a really important step like I, th- I think that there's so much more we can contribute in terms of research in this area it's, and it's really exciting to be able to do that yourself. Um, yeah, so I think, it, yeah, I think it's it's meet your people and be engaged in, engaged in, the, in the field with research if you can. Lovely. Yeah, and, then, and with that you get, you know, there are lots of opportunities and you never know where they might come up. All right. Thank you so much, Chris. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Liz. I really enjoyed it too. Thank you. And that concludes episode two of Forensic Minds Australia. Thank you so much to Dr. Chris Koza for taking the time to speak to us about offender behaviour programs. Now, join us next time for episode three of Forensic Minds. We'll be interviewing Dr. David Kerno about his time as a forensic psychologist on the Adult Parole Board. See you then.